listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Welcome you this morning, and we thank you for coming, being here, braving the slickery roads. Um, no coincidence that this video was played this morning on the, on the word that we have to be spoken today. The fact that the church has grown cold, it's grown cold there, it's grown cold. You know, it seems like where people are more prosperous is where the church gets colder. It's always been that way, I believe. If you look at the churches in Revelation where it talks about the, the different ones and the different sinful issues they had there, it's the ones that were more prosperous, where the culture around was very prosperous, that's where people's hearts get tempted away. But we're on the road to zeal there. Psalm 119 is where we're going to be primarily being today. And I want to start with this scripture. It's not Psalm 119. It's 2 Corinthians 7. I'll read it to you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, if you would like to go there. We'll use that as our stepping off place. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. <clears throat> now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you are made sorrow, uh, sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So in producing, in, producing, in uh, reading and preparing for this week, uh, I began reading again The Holy War, a book by John Bunyan. He's more known for Pilgrim's Progress. I know you've heard me quote it before, but you're going to hear it again because I like it. Too bad. And I, I keep being drawn to that book, and I, the reason I, I, I keep being drawn there is because it has so many parallels of, I mean, you would think, and it was written about 1670, more or less, somewhere in there. And you would think that that time, we just think of those old timers back there as like a more moral, a more, you know, purer bunch of people. They lived by a purer standard. Their families were together. They didn't, you know, but they were as lascivious. They were as immoral. They were as big of drunkards. They were as big of liars, as greedy, as worthless, as pitiful as we are today. They were the, we're people. People don't change. God doesn't change. People don't change. The people are the same. And so the, the issues that John Bunyan saw in the culture and so on in that era is the ones that, he, is the ones that we can see today. And I want, I'm going to read you a little quote out of there here in a second. But it's just a book like that. I mean, I, it's, it's tough sledding for sure. It's old, it was written more like King James type English, older English. But um, as those people... Um, they saw Emmanuel come. So the town is called Mansoul, Mansoul, like the man's soul. And then Jesus is spelled Emmanuel with an E. So they call him the prince or Emmanuel. So Emmanuel comes. He saves the people from their sins. The people are redeemed. He rescues the town from the evil one. But over time, the world sneaks in there. And one of the main weapons of the evil one that he takes to destroy the world in that time, in that story is these people he calls his his 20,000 doubters that was his armed group of of um, special forces operators that he's going to use to attack the town is doubters 
And it's, and it's a problem of unbelief. And that devotion I wrote for this morning, that's what it's about. It's about unbelief or disbelief. And the Bible calls that a sin. Disbelief is sin. And you can look in Hebrews there, Hebrews 3 and 4, and see how it's described that those who choose not to believe, they came, they followed, they did. But he says those that are in disbelief will not enter in. So disbelief is sin. Disbelief keeps us separated from God. Disbelief causes us fear. We sing that song, no longer a slave to fear. And in this particular case, it works out good. I really like it saying, I would like for it to say no longer a slave to sin. But we'll, we'll take what we get. But it's good for this morning, no longer a slave to fear. I'm not dogging your song. I'm just saying, whoever wrote it, fear doesn't enslave me, but sin does. Sin is the, a, a cruel master over me. And if I can get broke loose of sin, I can be free of the fear. The point is, not to get off track too bad. Uh, man is tempted away often from God by materialism. It's just how it is. By things. And uh, by the flesh, by the trickery of the evil one, a number of things that are going on there. They're constantly picking away at those that desire to be godly, but many who desire to be godly lack zeal. You can be godly and lack zeal. You can be a believer and lack zeal. And there's a, there's a kind of zeal that can be um, uh, short-lived, that doesn't sustain, and that can be a problem in the Christian life too. So we talk about the mind, the battle of the mind of the believer, um, and uh, it seems to be that it's a supernatural battle that we exist in, Christians exist in it, but we rarely recognize it for what it is. The thing about this, this town that, that's described in the Holy War is that, um, is that the people were unaware. They, they had the prince there with them. He was right there in their midst. They got the Holy Spirit in their presence. But they forget that, and they go about, it's so good, and he's there, and if I need him, I'll call him, and I just go about living my life. And eventually the prince is like, hey, remember when you used to come and visit every day? Remember when, remember when you were a new believer and you used to go to him every day and you sought his face every day? Uh, but then as time went on, as you became more and more mature, you know, you used to be more diligent about reading your Bible or, or doing a devotional or being in church or being around other believers. And as time got on and you grew and, you, and, and life went on, you have kids and you get a job and things mature or whatever, and then he gets put into this smaller and smaller corner where you just approach him at certain times. And um, the tragedy, I'll read this to you. The tragedy is eventually we forget that we have any part of him. We don't have the relationship we had with him when we were young as far as, as a believer. So the evil things of the world creep in and they do great damage to the believer. It does great damage to the soul and the minds of God's people. It makes them helpless. It can even make them depressed. We just, we just knew of a man, I told you that last week, who actually, devout guy, man, all kind of Bible tracks in his apartment and everything, and the man shot himself. And he was, he was watching the news all the time, and he was all concerned about COVID and, and the different laws that are being passed and things like that about COVID or what the government's doing. Man, that stuff's beyond your control. And a Christian man, a man of God, a guy, guy that was known as a, uh, an evangelist and, and a preacher killed himself because he got his focus off of a manual and got it on something else. That's the, that's the issue there. So what happens is the believer tries to fight these battles. They're a spiritual battle. 
But we quit using the things of the Spirit to fight the battle. And we begin to use things, you know, whatever, philosophy, psychology, books we read on, you know, a better marriage or better child rearing or a better way to make money or a better way to live a better life. And we're no longer looking for God's word, looking for the answers in God's word, no longer following Emmanuel, but we're following the things of the world, trying to find worldly solutions to supernatural problems. And it causes a great issue in the body of Christ. And what happens, and like I said, I alluded to, is that the Lord has willfully withdrawn himself. And he does it not because he hates us, because he loves us, and he wants us to come to our senses and return to him. Listen to this quote. So Emmanuel has sought for them to reflect on all that had transpired in hopes his people would return to him with their hearts. But alas, they didn't consider or read his ways because the changes in their relationship with him didn't bother them. The relationship had changed between the people and Christ, and they, it didn't really bother them. It didn't really make a difference in their life. They didn't see anything from before. In fact, they had more money and more time and more energy and more whatever. They didn't really think about his former favors. As a result, he withdrew, first from his palace that was in their midst, then he moved to the gate of the town, and finally he moved away from Mansoul, waiting for them to acknowledge their offense and earnestly seek his face. He removed his peace from them as well and no longer exerted its influence on them for the time being. Thus Mansoul walked contrary to his ways, and he, by way of reprisal, walked in the opposite direction from them. As Amos 3.3 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? They had become hardened, obstinate, and set in their ways because they had become carnal and thought that they had their spiritual security all controlled. So when the prince departed, it didn't bother them in the least. They didn't even think of him once he was gone, so his absence didn't grieve them even a little. That's, that's in the chapter called Deceived by Carnal Security. I wanted to read to you a, a scripture here out of Isaiah 59. And it talks about where zeal comes from, or how, how zeal is worn by a believer. Then the Lord, Isaiah 59, it's, it starts about 15b. Well, we'll start at 15. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man who wondered uh, that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation for him. In his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and is clad with zeal as a cloak. Who's he talking about? If you look at the hymn in there, he's talking about Christ. Remember when Christ goes to the temple there and clears it out, there's no one stopping him because the man that's walking in sin, he knows he's sinful and he runs even when no one pursues, says Proverbs, because he knows he's in the wrong relationship with God. He's in the temple doing the wrong things. He's got the wrong relationship thing going on while he's in there supposedly worshiping, worshiping the most high God. He's got the wrong view. And so it's a... It's a the point is, is that Jesus, when he returns, so when he comes the first time, he comes zealously. He weeps for the nation Israel. He, he in anger, talks about the, the people, you know, where is your belief? You don't believe I can do miracles? Where is your belief? You don't believe that I have the power to save? I'm going to raise this man from the dead. Well, he can raise from the dead, but and how dare he say he can, he can save someone from their sins? I just healed a man. Yeah, okay. I'll heal him. I mean, I just saved this man from his sins. Oh, that's easy to say. Well, is it easy to do? Because I just did it. 
He wore a cloak as a he wore zeal as a cloak like this like this jacket. He put it on, and he goes and he starts to clean out the things that are wrong in their culture. And their culture is so far removed, and their eyes are so closed, and their heart is so hardened that even in his zealous state, as he cleans out the temple and he says, "You've made my my father's house a place for trading rather than a place for worshiping him," and uh, and he's in anger in that, and they're like, "Well, what's he so mad about?" And so eventually he's like, I'll tell you what, I'll take my father's house from you. And then maybe you'll pursue my father. And still today, there's a relatively small group of, of devout believers, believing Jews and, and so on, that are seeking after the one true God. It's gotten smaller and smaller. Their zeal has left them. So last week, as we began on the path to zeal, it began with the man recognizing that he was living a life separate from God, and he asked God to remove that life from him, to remove that spirit from him. You have commanded us, in verse 4, to keep your precepts diligently. Verse 5, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Psalm 119. We're going to be in Psalm 119 from here on. He asked the Lord to remove his, from him false ways, lying, <clears throat> shame, a desire for looking at worthless things, covetousness, basically, and disbelief. And he asked God to replace those with other things. And the main one that we, we uh, talked about last week was the fact that he asked him to revive him, to replace, to remove these wicked things from him and to replace them with revival in him. So he desired a close relationship with God, a desire to know God, uh, to, not, to know his laws and his statutes and his, his testimonies and his commandments and his ways and his truths. And he recognizes immediately that as he goes from this lost dead man to a live man, that there's a different set of rules and regulations for a man to live by in the kingdom of heaven than there is in the kingdom of earth. And now as a saved man, he needs these new ways instituted into his person so he began to walk, so he can begin to walk in a godly way and begin to know who God is. So he removes from him lying, shame, desire for looking at worthless things, and he replaces them with this new spirit, this new hope. And this man begins to love to meditate on God's laws, and God's word becomes a delight to him. So then it brings on revival. And I'm just kind of doing a review of last week, I know, for you that were here, but for those just trying to get you caught up to where we're at, he begins with a revival, and the revival begins to work in the spirit of the man. And the revival is the only true replacement that can fill the hole in the man when he had these things removed, these wicked things of the earth, these wicked things of sin and so on, these wicked ideas, these false ways, the only thing that can truly fill it and restore the man to a usable, uh, <clears throat> functioning citizen of the kingdom of God is for him to be revived. So he removes the ungodly ways that have been developed in this man since birth, and he replaces them with revival. So once revived, the man begins to grow spiritually, and in his growth, God uses this word affliction to make him into a mature believer. We don't like affliction. Affliction comes as a result of sin. We learn God's judgment. It comes to purify us for God's purposes. It comes as a part of living in a fallen world and as a result of persecution for Christ's sake. I'll read you 119 verse 65, uh, 67 there. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. When I was a little kid and I'm doing my own thing, I've used this example a lot, but I'm running towards the road. It doesn't take but about three good licks from dad to realize that it's not a good idea to run towards the road. His affliction 
draws me to life. He's not beating me because he hates me. He's beating me because he loves me. And he wants to draw me to himself. If I run to the road and get hit by a bus, uh, he hates me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't let me um, uh, get all that I'm due. He restrains me so that I live. Affliction is a positive. We saw that only in one case was affliction kind of put in a negative sense uh, where he was asked for it to be removed, 119 uh, verse 153. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. All right, I'm not going towards the road anymore. Stop hitting me. He's like, there comes a point, and this is at the end of the uses of the word affliction, by the way. This is one of the last ones. And he's like, okay, I, I get it, Lord, I get it. You're using the affliction to draw me to yourself. I was talking to my man Charles this morning about the apostle Paul and the thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to remove it three times. And God says, I'm not removing the thorn from your flesh. The thorn in your flesh, the affliction of your flesh, is what drives you to follow me more closely, whatever it was. You're saying, I can, I can live without the affliction. If he removes the affliction, our propensity is to follow the world, is to follow the material things, is to be like everyone else. If he institutes the affliction on it, our, our uh, oh, what's the word? I just used it. Our, our action would be more to follow him. We would, our instinct would be more to follow him and to seek him because we're, we're desperate when you're beating me, I'm desperate. I don't know. I just saw this. Um, it was the way they were um, dealing with these. Um, it was black people. It was in Africa somewhere. I can't remember where. I, it was a, a black fellow. And they had him in a, in a, uh, uh, just a community there, the mud huts and the, and the roof. And he had done something wrong. And they laid him down in the middle of the, of the town. And they were just whipping him on his back and everybody's just standing there watching this guy be whipped in front of everyone he was being afflicted for his for whatever he had done wrong the punishment was very severe and they said that this kind of crime wasn't common there and it's not common there is because they beat them <laughs> and it drives that folly far from them. that's what the bible says beat your son and drive folly far from him if you love your son i'm sorry i said it wrong beat your son and it will drive folly far from him if you love him then you have to discipline him so that he won't be foolish and run into the road. We don't see affliction as a positive, but in God's word, he points out that it's in a schoolmaster that the man needs in order to understand what the rules, what the regulations are, what the constitution, how it reads, the kingdom constitution, how does it read? What are the rules that I got to abide by to live in this heavenly realm, particularly to live in a heavenly realm on earth? Because I have to live in a supernatural way. I have to be aware of this battle that's going on in a supernatural way here on earth as it is in heaven. It's a, hard, it's a hard deal. It can be a severe thing or it can be momentary and light, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4. But like I told you last week, the momentary light affliction that Paul's talking about is being fed to the wild animals. It's being persecuted. It's being uh, stoned. It's being lost at sea. And it's being imprisoned. That's what Paul calls the momentary light affliction. And we don't think of that as momentary or light. If you put me in prison with no heat and air conditioning on an occasional bread and water diet, I wouldn't see that as a positive. But Paul sees it as momentary and light because it only lasts for as long as the man lives on earth. Because it's going to drive men to the Father. 
if, if I can endure right now for this time, no matter what happens, no matter what the affliction is, eventually I gain eternal life. And all this will be forgotten. The great example is in the Bible is where, where it talks about a woman having a baby. And that last torment that the poor lady goes through in the contractions and the labor in the nine months of whatever you go through, you know what you go through. But after it's done, it says it's all forgotten. When you hold the child in your arm, all the torment of all is like, yeah, that was a bad day. But look what I got. Yeah, look what I got. Crying, diapers, <laughs> whatever. But you know what I'm saying? Once the momentary light affliction, which is very severe for a time, is ended, you have joy. Hard for us to get our minds around that, I'm sure. So the man, he goes through affliction, and because of that suffering, this side, we gain heaven on the other side. It makes us a better citizen of heaven and eternity. And, uh, and it's this affliction is, is God's work of training for righteousness in the believer here. It draws us to his care. So now the man begins to find rest. This is very... It just doesn't seem possible, but the man finds rest through affliction. So the growth of the believer from removing, to removing the sin to replacing with these godly viewpoints to revival, now affliction brings rest. The man begins to recognize, as we're working through Psalm, this Psalm 119, he begins to recognize that these afflictions are drawing him closer to God. This man is ready to go from rest to rejoicing or from rest to zeal. So finally, to get to Psalm 119, <laughs> he's been afflicted greatly. I found like seven to ten times there where the word affliction was used. And the man has recognized it as a, as a positive thing, a thing that draws him to the Father. And if you remember there in uh, 1 Thessalonians it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, in affliction, give thanks, for this is the will, uh, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, in affliction, find rest. Give thanks. When I see affliction, here's the thing for us, we really have a struggle in finding a, affliction like we see Paul having affliction. We attribute things that are affliction to us that may not necessarily be affliction to most nations. Like the power goes off, we're like, I'm being afflicted. You know, I run out of whatever dessert in my refrigerator. Affliction, it's not the same as this affliction that's brought on by judgment or persecution or by the hand of God. So we need to see that affliction would be more likely to, to be visible as a sickness, a handicap, a death, a, a disease, persecution from government, persecution for Christ's sake, things like that would be a better Ideal, and we're kind of seeing that kind of soft persecution going on right now in our country. It looks like it's going to be more severe, and we need to be ready for that. So as this psalmist is, we should be growing in this psalm. We've got 176 verses to help us grow in this psalm to be prepared for a harder affliction that's coming now. So the old word there in everything is affliction. In that, we give thanks. The man begins to see that the Lord's been working on him and in him and through him since he was born, since before the foundation of the earth. God had a plan for every one of us 
before the foundation of the earth. That's hard for us to get our minds around because we're so temporal in mind and our line of thinking is so limited. But God's view of, of time, earth, expanse, universe, and all things, much greater than man can grasp. But he's had a plan for you to do these things in you and through you from before you were ever born, before your great-grandparents were ever born, or before Adam was born. He's got a plan to use you, and, uh, and this man recognizes that. It's part of growing in God's Word and reading His Word. Psalm uh, 119, verse 65, we'll start there. Uh, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Look at verse 73. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Because of his faithfulness he afflicted you. Thank you, Lord, for afflicting me. Do you wake up and say that very often? Me neither. <laughs> 89, uh, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Before the foundations of the earth, I had a plan. You're going to fit in that plan. I'm going to use you. Different things are going to happen to you. You're not going to like all of them. You may not like any of them, but because of it, my glory is going to be revealed in you. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinance for all are your servants. All of the earth is his servants. And his existence, this afflicted believer recognizes that God had a plan to use him in that way. And I noticed that in these afflictions, that by verse 96 and 97, this man becomes more excited the way he begins to to read the psalm. We should, it's, it's difficult sometimes when you're reading the word, especially if you read the same chapter over and over and you end up reading it just like you're, you know, you're reading the science book when you're in fifth grade or whatever. It's just blah, blah, blah. You know, you're just kind of reading like, man, if you read it with the energy that it's wrote, written with, you'll see that this guy is kind of building in enthusiasm. But I have seen the consummation of all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. See the exclamation mark there? Some gringo added that years ago. That wasn't in the Greek and Hebrew because it, was, it wasn't in the Hebrew, I'm sorry, because they didn't have, uh, you know, what's the word? Punctuation. But, uh, but it's how it's written. The enthusiasm was, oh, how I love, I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I can't wait to get up and read it. That's not what, a, that's not what a, a guy that it's a drudgery would say as he reads it. This is what a guy who's grown through the word of God would say. He reads it, and he's motivated to read it more. He becomes more excited, more zealous. He's really starting to grasp how great God is and how great his work is and how by the use of God's word, he can overcome any enemy that occurs against him in this realm or in the supernatural realm. He begins to recognize that God has got it under control. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. It's a, it's a real critical little verse right there that tells you and this man that by the study of God's word and the application of it to your spirit, to yourself, that you can have as much knowledge of God as you desire right here. It's in his word, through prayer, through meditation, through fasting, through time spent with other believers, through preaching, through those things. You can know as much about God as you desire, as all you want. It's, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. Oh, Warren, he's a big Shoney's man. Always wants to go to Shoney's. He likes to go there and 
touch all them handles that everybody else has already touched all sticky with the stuff on them. Yeah, they make you wear gloves, he says. Now, <laughs> Anyway, I'm not a smorgasbord guy, but this God's word is. It's all you can eat. There's no end to the amount of volume of it that you can take in. You just, it's just how much time you're willing to, to give, to learn, to eat at this table. One of my favorite songs, Russ Taft, The Table in the Wilderness. I love that song. There's a table in the wilderness where the, where the weak can come and the strong possess. You can, anyone can come to this table and eat all they want. It's there, but you just got to go get it. And you can have more knowledge than college professor guy. In fact, Paul told us that knowledge puffs up. A lot of these college professor guys, they can become quite arrogant in what they know. They got all the answers, but they don't have the spirit. They got the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. It's a tragedy. You can be brilliant in handling God's word, but not know him. And at the end, him say, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. I never knew you. Well, I helped this old lady across the street. Yeah, but you didn't know me. Yeah, but I taught all these people about your word. I appreciate that, but you didn't know me. But this guy's saved that went to your class and became alive and revived. So whatever. You can remember that when you're in the fiery pit. Enjoy your time there. You can have salvation. It's not the college, the college degree is not necessary for salvation. The college degree is not necessary for you to know who God is. The college degree or the professorship or whatever, or to be a Sadducee or a Pharisee is not necessary for one to grow spiritually. You don't have to have that to grow spiritually. He makes it available to any who would come. I read one time that the Bible is so deep that the wisest man who ever read it could never plumb all his depths, and the most simple could read it with great understanding. So it doesn't matter if you're dumb or if you're brilliant, the Bible has what you need to understand who God is and his care for you. So actually, in thinking about that, the Bible says that we need to be careful in listening to others preach the word, and we always encourage you to go home to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Each one of you going home and reading and making sure that what I told you this morning, what Jed told you, Dave, whatever they told you, that it's correct. And you go home and you, and you parse it out and you make sure that what you were told correct. And that's what the psalmist recognized too. He says, how can I know that what that guy told me is right? It says back here, by taking heed according to thy word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to thy word. All I got to do is read his word. I read his word. His word becomes clear. The Holy Spirit reveals it to me. I read it. He gives me understanding. He gives me conviction of spirit. He draws me closer to him through it. And this is something I saw with zeal. Is this man's view of the world begins to change. Verse 104, he says... I hate every false way. Through your, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. All of a sudden, he has a new view of the things that are going on in the world, the things that are going on in himself. One verse 158 says, I see the treacherous and I am disgusted because they do not keep your word. I can't believe these people are so stupid that they would not believe that God's word is truth. I can't believe these people are so foolish the fool in his heart says, no, God, I can't believe these people would say no to God. I can't believe these people would see that the Ten Commandments would bring them into a better life and not a worse life, a freer life and not a more controlled life, an unchained life and not a chained life. That It reveals personal sin to the person as he reads the word and he's like, man, I, if I could get 
this loose, if I could get loose of this thing that's controlling me, I could have a closer relationship with God. He begins to desire that more and more as he reads the word. Verse 139, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. His desires have completely changed. Now he sees the world as God sees it. Two groups, the, the sheep and the goats, the lost and the saved, the living and the dead. <clears throat> and he sees those and he vigorously defends God's word with a desire to see others come to his word, others come to Christ, others to be revived and restored and removed, revived and restored. The man has lost, look by 108 and 109, he's lost all fear of death. We sang about that this morning, no longer a slave to fear. Except I pray the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. This, you know, David, if this was David that wrote, we're not sure on the psalmist, but David, we will assume is the psalmist. It could have been him or a couple other guys. But David, the greatest warrior of all time, best, better than any Navy SEAL, special forces guy, black ops got better. He never lost a battle. Do you know that? If you read through David's life, he never lost a battle. Never. He fought hundreds of men with a sword. With the sword is very close. Shooting somebody with a rifle is one thing. Fighting somebody with a sword is something else. He never lost a battle. His life, saying it was in his own hand, is him fighting it out with another... <clears throat> it wasn't like he was always fighting five-year-olds either. He was fighting warriors. It'd be one thing to go beat up a fifth grader, but go over there and beat up Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It's a different song and it's a different story. He fought them all. Lion needs killing? Okay. Bear needs killing. I got that. Goliath. Okay. His, his life was in his own hand. He took it before them. He did not fear death because he knew that God holds his very life in his hand. Many people very much struggle with that. In this, in this time we've been in, it's been very revealing to me as I've seen people struggle with that, this fear of who holds their life. It shows in, uh, like verse 1, uh, I'm going to skip that, but that, you know that scripture that says, <clears throat> talking about the end of time there in Matthew, it says, the love of many will have grown cold. Just like it said in our thing. The love of many have grown cold. The love of many who? Many believers. Believers, the love of many believers has grown cold. As it gets colder, it gets more fearful. They've forgotten that God alone decides how you pass. And I'm going to talk about the news for one second. And we don't know what's the truth, what's not the truth. This is something I heard. It could be true, it could be false. Who knows? It's the news. But apparently, in the last year, in 2020, same number of people died as the year before, 2019, overall in the world. Um, so this is the point. You're going to die of something. You might die of COVID, car wreck, whatever. Airplane crash, you can't fly an airplane, so you're probably good for that one. Whatever. Whatever you're going to die of, you're going to die. It's appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. Every man dies. Quit worrying about how you're going to die and start living as a revived man of God. You're going to die. I'm sorry. You're going to die. That's the truth. However you die is however God designs. 
my life, I commend myself to him. The Bible says that Jesus wouldn't commend himself to men because he knew what they were, but he would commend himself to you. I commend myself. He commends himself to God. I commend myself to you, Lord. If you kill me, put in the mail in the mailbox. If you ever put mail in this mailbox out here, you'll see what I'm talking about. Taking your life in your hands to put mail in that mailbox out there. Nobody slows down, and they like swerve towards you. You're like, huh, you got to just throw it in there. I mean, so if I die out there and you find me all spread out like a run-over possum out there on the road, that's, that's, my, that's how he took me. If I die of corona, that's how I die. If I die of whatever, that's how I die. You need to get that in your mind. You need to get over that fear of death. This man no longer fears death. That's how he can be this kind of warrior. You can go into the face of Goliath easily if you don't fear death. All those other guys are standing back there like, oh, go against that guy. He's a big guy. And he's like, man, I got it. God's, he, didn't say, I, just, he didn't say, I got this, but he said, God's got this. And he goes up and he does what he's got to do. The Bible says that by worry you can't add one second to your life, nor by the greatest amount of effort can you add one moment to your life. So quit, quit dwelling on that. God has the answer in this psalm for a life of rest. But you've got to place yourself fully in his hands like this man does. Remember that God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. And I was telling Tracy this morning, it was funny, because she was one I was thinking about when I wrote this down, but she said something about getting something up, up, up high. She's on her tiptoes getting these, the plates now, and she goes, oh, I got this, you know, I got this. That's what we say, I got this. But the reality is, is God has got this. We, in our, we're just, I mean, I know you're saying it in jest, but we say that all the time, I've got this. And the reality is, we really are taking on the things that God would love to take care of for you. We're taking it on ourselves and saying, I got this. <laughs> you said that, you said I got this, and if I can't get this, I'll, ma I'll make it like I look like I got this or something, you know, whatever. That's what we do. Even if we don't got this, we say we got this. And we don't allow the place for God to afflict us or to care for us. And in that, we end up having great fear. God has this or nobody does. Look at 165. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. Uh Verse 165, I read 166. That's a good one too. 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes you to, them to stumble. I was listening to Moody yesterday, a little Chinese lady on there. She calls uh, Voice of the Martyrs <clears throat> show and uh, she was teaching kindergarten in China, but she was just teaching the kids um, like Christian principles, honoring your parents, being obedient, telling the truth, things like that, not being greedy. And they arrested her for it because they said, you got those out of the Bible. So they arrested her and put her in jail. And the guy said, well, were you, know, were you afraid? Or was she goes, well, no, I mean, God will use... I always thought my husband would get arrested because he's a pastor. They didn't arrest him, they arrested her. And uh, so she was a little, you know, put out by that, that he didn't get arrested too. But she's like, man, this is what we should expect as believers, she recognized that God had control of the whole thing and she had great peace. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. So one of the greatest gifts, if I had to say about Psalm 119, is it's this blessing in here of learning to love God. This man grows from kind of a, a little bit of a obscure knowledge of God in Psalm 119 verse 1 and by the end here he's telling you, I love you Lord. My cry comes to you, O Lord. I meditate on you day and night, Lord. Without you, 
you know, there's no point in living. Uh, many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and I am disgusted because they do not keep your word. He sees the world in a whole different viewpoint. And all it does is, and, and what it does is draw him to the Lord deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what we say that we want. And I really think that the body, just like this church they were talking about here in Andromeda or wherever that was, or Rhododendron, who? El Redidor? Andorra? It was something. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever that country was, that was the problem, is they had so much wealth and so much. It was a beautiful place. I mean, if I want to go on a mission trip, that's where I want to go. It's beautiful. But they're, you can be, <laughs> have a cat, yeah. Yeah. You can be a person who knows of God and not be saved. Did you know that? A thing that I'm studying on right now is those that that uh they're uh, truly lost. They think they're saved but they're lost. They don't they have a faith that's based on a hope of a person that they don't know. And it's a very dangerous place to be. There's a lot of people that said 90% of that culture uh, claim to be Christians. But to claim to be a Christian and be a Christian is two different animals. A Christian takes up his cross daily and follows Christ. A Christian knows Christ and Christ knows him. A Christian is not an enemy of God. He's not a worldly man thinking he can live exactly like the world and still attain heaven. That's not a Christian. A Christian is a set-apart man. So the churches have grown cold as have many very knowledgeable Christians in his body throughout our nation. And what it's done is it's made the church lose its zeal. Their commitment, people's, Christians' commitments, this is going to hurt your feelings, but Christians' commitments are to their family or to their home or to their job or to their stuff or to their, their livelihood or to their income or to their whatever they're doing that has this great importance in their house. And like was talked about in Holy War, Christ is put in this really tiny little corner, and there's very little relationship with him anymore. It's not maybe that they're even lost, but they're spiritually essentially dead. They don't know Christ, and they're not living as if they do. Maybe they've just lost their love for the God who saved them. And all these other things have taken over their minds and their soul. And this crazy time that's coming upon us if, if it was anything if i ever saw anything it's this twenty thousand doubts these twenty thousand doubters that have crept into the minds of believers and they said can god really do it is god really there does god really exist is he really the one is there or should we look for another they're they're confused so i'm going to ask you guys to go back and read psalm 119 again and see if you can find some encouragement for this time for this day to draw you back to the Father, more so than you have before. Maybe you've lost your zeal. And I want to talk next week, maybe we can get into that, about zeal and what it looks like as in the daily walk of a person. But this man has gained zeal by the end. It takes him 176 verses to get there, but he's gained zeal. He's gained zeal from being lost to being zealous. In 100, just 176 verses, take the time to read through it and see if you can be restored in your zealousness for God. I was thinking about the Christian walk, and it's, it's, uh, it's not a sprint. We're, we're, a, we're a quick operating kind of people now. We get mad at McDonald's if you've got to wait behind four cars, you know. I've been notoriously bad to drive around a long line at the drive-thru. Like, I ain't going there. It's going to take too long. We want everything fast. The Bible, 
The Christian life, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, you see the marathon races. You don't see, you know, like you go to a basketball game, you see all the guys on the court are jumping up and down and hee-hawing and, you know, pumping each other up. They only got to play for 48 minutes. You don't see the marathon runners doing that. They're stretching. They all got grim faces. They know they're in for a kick in here for the next two to four hours. You're not going to spend a bunch of energy at the front. You need it for the long haul. And many believers come to faith in Christ with a, a zealous sprint, and they die off as soon as the sun hits them. But we've got to set our jaws for the long run. We've got to have the endurance. The race is not to the swift, but it's to the enduring. The zealous believer is at rest, though. He sees the negative things of the world as just afflictions that must be endured in order to gain the prize at the end. And I hope that you can see that this morning. Um, he doesn't, you know... We shouldn't fret over these temporal things. I think we've lost that view sometimes of this isn't it. This is just what we have now, but this isn't it. The, uh, I was listening to a, a news guy, and one of his beefs against Christians, he goes, Christians aren't worried about coronavirus or whatever because they have this hope of eternal life, and so they don't take it seriously. It's not that we don't take it seriously. But yeah, we have a hope of eternal life. We know that this isn't all that there is. Trying to survive alive for more days here is not the goal of the kingdom of God. Encouraging others to recognize the goodness of God, the fact that he sent his son to die for man because man was so corrupt and sinful that he couldn't achieve salvation on his own. That's the call of the believer. The call is to dwell with God eternally, not temporally. And we're living in a temporal time. So hopefully you're somewhere on this path between removing and rejoicing. And if you're in there somewhere, there's some aspect of that where you've gotten bogged down or you've letting these, these doubts of the world creep in and, and take you aside where you've not had your endurance, you've had the wind knocked out of you. Go back and, and spend some time in the Word. Get back in prayer. Get back in meeting with other believers. Not, not once a week for an hour. It's on the radio. It's on the internet. You can find God's word all over the place. Spend time in the word. Spend time reading and dwelling on him. Being encouraged by other believers. And you'll be growing towards this path of zeal. One aspect of zeal is action. To take in God's word daily and to never give it to another is sin. To receive God's word, you need to be like the Ethiopian eunuch receive his word and go away glad. And there was a group of Ethiopians that were found in the 70s, 1970s and 80s that knew about God because of the Ethiopian eunuch 2,000 years before that Philip led to Christ. Be that guy. Take your zeal on the road. If none of what I talked about this morning made any sense to you whatsoever, then it's likely that you're an unsafe person. And you don't want to hear that in church because, well, I'm in church, I'm a good person, you know. But the reality is, the Bible says there's no one good, not even one. There's none who seeks after God. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. The, the very things that we do day by day does nothing but build up an account of death against us in the day of death. And the only way we can overcome that is by accepting Christ to take away that debt that we owe. And so today, while it's still called today, you need to make that decision while it's still fresh on your mind, while you're still, you know, conflicted in your spirit of like, well, maybe I'm not saved. The Bible says to uh, exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
It says to uh, work out your salvation. What is it talking about? Work out your salvation. It means make sure you're saved. Make sure. Read the book. And if you have a question, work on it now. Because you don't know. I might ask you to both put the mail in out there. You may not make it. Work on your salvation right now. We're going to pray and then we're going to have communion this morning. Communion is open to all uh, who claim Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And Jimmy's going to lead us in communion this morning. And uh, we're going to pray first. And I want to give you the opportunity to, you can repent. You can pray right where you're at. You can come up here. I would love to talk to you if you're an unsaved person. If you're a saved person, you want to rededicate that part of, of your spirit that you've allowed to grow cold, we can talk about that too. But today, while it's still called today, seek the Lord while he can still be found. Father, this morning, Lord, we thank you for your word, the word that was spoken. I pray is the word that you had for us today. I thank you for your goodness, your long-suffering, your mercies. They're new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. Father, have mercy on us for allowing our hearts to grow cold against you and for us to lose our zeal. We've lost it because of whatever thing that we've allowed to creep in, and it's taken our focus off of you. And for that, we ask for your mercy, and we ask for your forgiveness. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I confess now, Lord, that we've not been as zealous, zealous as we should be. We've not been as caring of your word as we should have been. We've not been as diligent to read your word and to delight in it as we should have been. I ask that you restore to us the joy of our salvation, Lord. I pray for those that are here today may not be with Christ. They may be in their own path, doing their own thing, Lord. I pray that you reveal to them, convict in their spirits the fact that without you, there is nothing but an eternal damnation. Have mercy on us, Lord, a bunch of sinners, Lord, seeking to do your will and to find your face, Lord. I pray that you reveal yourself. Do not remove your presence from us, Lord. Don't treat us like the town of Mansoul, Lord, but restore your lampstand to our place, Lord, and fill it with your holy oil, Lord. May it overflow onto these that are here, Lord, that your spirit would be seen by others as we go about our daily lives. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your long-suffering and your care. In Jesus' name, amen.